New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. Boat. This is the United States Coast Guard. Anyone who want to help with the evacuation of Lower Manhattan, report to Governor's Island. There are over 100 vessels that ended up responding to that radio call. In tugboats, we had uh, dinner cruises, we had, you know, some were very large, the Staten Island Ferry, and all types of vessels were there. The Coast Guard is so well regarded, so well respected in the maritime community, that people were willing to, to listen to a lieutenant on a boat in the middle of uh, New York Harbor um, requesting help. And here's a means, here's a mechanism that we can harness our, our energy uh, for, good, for the good of our, of our common man. 20 years ago, when hijacked planes hit the Twin Towers, everybody scrambled to flee from Lower Manhattan, desperate to return home. If they lived on the island or could walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, they were fortunate. But what about those who had a river between them and home? We'll meet the brave mariners who threw their ships into the largest rescue in history. But first, hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. And remember, you can read my columns in the Washington Times to get a little bit of my analysis of current events in the light of history. In this episode, our time machine travels back to that bright morning that turned so dark when ships of all sizes answered the cries for help coming from the World Trade Center. Our guide on this journey is Jessica Dulong, who brings us Saved at the Seawall, stories from the September 11th boat lift. Jessica Dulong is a woman of many hats and talents. She's a marine engineer, as well as an award-winning author, journalist, historian, ghostwriter, book collaborator, proposal doctor, editor, and writing coach. She also writes frequently about grief, trauma, parenting, and mindfulness. You may have read her work without knowing it, but the first book with her name on the cover was My River Chronicles rediscovering the work that built America, a personal and historical journey. Visit jessicadulong.com for more, or if you just want to see a really excellent website that's engaging and done well. Plus, you can visit her social media accounts. Those are on Twitter, at Jessica Dulong, and Facebook. Those are linked at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. Okay. Now that terror has struck those gleaming silver spires and all traffic in and out of Manhattan is locked down, let's join Jessica Dulong and meet the half a million survivors who were saved at the seawall. And here we are with Marine engineer Jessica Dulong. She's joining us to discuss her book, Saved at the Seawall, stories from the September 11th boat lift. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today on the History Author Show. It's my absolute pleasure. We were just discussing, and this goes to your work with grief, that sometimes you struggle, at least I do as a writer. You're certainly a, a writer, an editor, a book doctor, all of these things that you feel like I shouldn't choose that word. I shouldn't say I enjoyed a book that's about something like 9-11, but this book is a human story and we do enjoy history. That's why we read it. 
but this is history you lived through. And in my experience, I was in Hoboken on 9-11. So across the river, I could see the towers from the window of my apartment. Mm -hmm. So it was very striking to me. But I noticed in those following days, everybody wanted to share their stories if they were far away. If they saw it from far away, they found it easier to discuss their stories than if they were very close up. Like one of my cousins was right there in, in one of the towers and doesn't want to talk about it. And it's kind of a clash because you have people that do want and don't want to. If they get together, then you say, oh, gosh, I overstepped. So it's a different kind of catharsis. And for you, since you're there at the time, you have to go through those emotions to be able to tell this story here in Saved at the Seawall. So describe where you were that morning and tell us how you overcome that reticence so that you can bring us this really excellent book. Thank you so much. And I, I really appreciate your, your acknowledgement of that because I think it's it's important for journalists and historians of all kinds to, to acknowledge that there is a secondary trauma that can happen even if you're just writing about something. And so I think being mindful of that um, is important. Um, for me, it, it took a very long time to be willing to talk about this day at all. Um, and, uh, and I definitely, I, I hear what you're saying that the, uh, the stories abound from people who are far away. Um, and I think that that's a natural process. It's, uh, it's a natural desire to sort of process big things that happen in the world. And I think for people who were there in, and there were so many different ways to be there, right? Whether it's in Manhattan, actually at the tip of Manhattan, stuck at the seawall, all of these different things are in the buildings. There are all these different there's. And for me, I think what happened was that I realized that what overshadowed my deep discomfort with talking about these days was an obligation that I felt to tell this story, to share this history, which is a part of who we are, helping one another. And that desire um, to get the story out there about this community, my community of Mariners, that's what propels me forward. And it still fuels me through uh, conversations like this, because this is really important history. It's really important, especially in moments of great division and uh, that's a, that's a lot, but um, this is a difficult time in our country, in our world, and it's so important that as we remember all of the bad things that happen, it's really important that we remember all the good and all of the ways that people come together and make the choice over and over again to help one another when, when things go wrong. And that's so key that it, it is positive, that there's a positive that comes out of it. And this story, it's amazing to me that Saved at the Seawall is a story to tell it. You would think this would have been everywhere uh, right after 9-11. It should be a legend that we all know, except it's fact. It's not myth, as many legends are. And for me, you talk about that community. And ferries are such a wonderful part of New York City. That's the first mass transit that we have. And I used to take the New York Waterway Ferry for many years into Manhattan. And I remember that day. And then I remember again here reading Saved at the Seawall that I felt this unearned sense of pride. And it was because I you'd talk to those guys, right? You're going back and forth and you you get to know them and you you see they're working. And it's not always easy just to speak to people when, when you're trying to work and somebody's trying to pick your ear or whatever, but they're always friendly and you could tell the dedication. Sometimes something would go slightly wrong. People would fall in the water occasionally and they always had to be at the ready. So for me, I, I felt that sense of pride when I read about the New York waterway ferries, 
Staten Island Ferry as well. You have a, a great quote where you say a guy felt like he had a target painted on his back. So those guys know how to transport people. So that's one thing. If you're a water taxi, Coast Guardsmen and women are also trained. But what about the smaller boats, the boats that maybe could just carry a couple of people that weren't designed to pick any passengers up? How do they pitch in for this effort in this community that you just mentioned? You know, it's so interesting to hear that as a as a regular ferry rider that you felt that sense of community, right? That is a community. And people would talk about how, you know, there would be people that they would cross to Manhattan with every day and they went looking for them, you know, looking for familiar faces. And it's actually, it's really interesting to think about now in the midst of the pandemic where so much social distancing, so much physical distancing has meant that some of those stranger, but known stranger, like familiar face interactions, um, people are really realizing how much they miss Right. So there is a community that you were a part of as a commuter. And I think that that's important to recognize all these pockets of community that we sometimes take for granted Um, in terms of these other boats. Yes, absolutely. Being a mariner, as it sounds like you observed, it means that everything is super boring. Nothing's happening. It's just long, long drudgery over and back or, you know, whatever, whether you're a ferry uh, crew member or um or, uh, you know, running a tugboat, it's there are long, long periods of nothing. And then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose. And that's kind of that's the gig, right? And so you have to be able to um, respond really quickly, you have to be able to marshal all the tools that you have literal physical tools, but also the skills that you have. And so as a licensed merchant mariner, I had to take firefighting training, shipboard firefighting, I had to take CPR training, I had to take all of these sort of might seem to be peripheral education and tests to be able to earn my Coast Guard license, right? So that's the case of all of these mariners, because when you're operating in a vessel, there, you can't just wait for the fire department to come, you know, it's it's urgent. And so that is precisely the skill set that people were able to bring that day. So the ferry operators, they do a monthly man overboard drill. And they used that, you know, drop the ladder, get everything set up every single month. And so it was like routine for them to be able to do that, even when there were real people in the water. And so that practice is instrumental to how successful this boat lift was and how many lives were saved. There were so many people in the water um, who were rescued by boat. In terms of um, your question about other vessels, while these vessels are not designed for carrying passengers, and in fact, they're like absolutely forbidden from carrying passengers, like tugboats, for example, they're not equipped for that. There are, there are pieces of equipment built onto the decks that are just huge tripping hazards. Like they're just passengers have no business being on a tugboat, um, only trained crew members. And um, of course, all the rules that day changed. So what that meant was there are stories of folks who are coming from Staten Island, for example, where a lot of um, that's home base for a lot of tugboats. And on the way they were envisioning the, the crew members were envisioning, OK, if we have to take on passengers, how do we need to like retrofit our decks? How can we clear tripping hazards? How can we maneuver equipment around so that it's safer? And so they did that a bit in advance when they were racing over. And it also required a whole bunch of ingenuity and just creative problem solving on the fly of what do we have? What do we need? What's the job we need to accomplish? And um, 
on tugboats, what that meant was people climbing, you know, if you picture the model bow tug with that pointy nose, right? And the fendering that that most people, even non-mariners, have been familiar with, people were climbing the fendering. People were climbing ladders that were set up. People actually had to climb uh, horizontal ladders to get from some boats that were not equipped to be able to take on passengers. And so it was extremely perilous. Um, and the fact that there were so many lives saved and so few injuries is really a testament to the professionalism of the mariners and how they all came together. You spoke there about the preparation and the boredom. It's nothing's happening until everything's happening. And it just made me think of the PS Slocum disaster in the East River. So if people listening or watching want to see what happens when people don't take their jobs seriously on the water, don't take safety seriously, that's the worst loss of life before 9-11 in New York City, where they're out there on that pleasure cruise and the life jackets are crumbling to dust in their hands. The 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 lifeboats are painted to the deck and the fire rips through because they don't close the door, which is basic fire safety. Those things are very easy to blow off and you have to take it seriously. And the fact that they did explains why this happens. Now, you talked about the boats coming across and I want people who aren't familiar with the geography of New York City who I can hear them saying, well, I would just swim home. And that's the, uh, I don't know why it's a man, but it is apparently. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, your chapter four, in fact, is titled with a quote. The quote is, I was going to swim to Jersey. And that sounds like just desperation, maybe a little funny to people that are listening, but that's no easy feat. And to me, it definitely sounds like desperation because often you're going across that river and you know how deep it is. So Explain just how stranded people were and why this evacuation prevented a human catastrophe, prevented something like the P.S. Slocum, where people were just throwing themselves in the water, unable to swim. And unfortunately, so many lost their lives, over a thousand. The, yeah, the General Slocum disaster is just a horrific story. And it, there's a beautiful, heartbreaking book about it that I really turn to. It seems kind of odd, but sort of to buoy me in a sense through writing this. Absolutely. The, the professionalism and preparedness, baseline preparedness, while this was a completely unplanned, totally spontaneous, not top-down, hierarchically led evacuation, it there were some sort of baseline standard operating procedures that really saved so many lives. In terms of the geography, Manhattan comes to a point at the end, right? It's called the Battery. That's the tip of Manhattan. And if people were far enough north, they could just go north the drama and the unpredictability and not knowing whether this was the beginning or the ending or if the world, this was the apocalypse, all of that was still at play, but people could just walk North. What people forget, even New Yorkers, even today, I tell people who were here that day, that there were places on the island of Manhattan, which is an island, which we often forget, um, where if you were caught at this particular point, there was no way off because of the debris and the smoke and the conditions except over water or by water. That was the only way. So people were literally pressed up against the seawall, against the railings, stuck. Um, so that desperation in I was going to swim to Jersey is very real. You have this just it's it's even hard to put into words, this cloud, this mushrooming, like cauliflowering Billis, Billis like mass of debris and smoke and ash and horror and building coming down on you. And people ran 
until they ran out of land and they jumped in the water. And um, one of the people who I interviewed who told me her story, she, she, and she's a mariner, she's a sailor. Um, although she's not a, a working mariner, she had been a, um, actually, I think Olympic sailor. And she talked about how, I know it doesn't make any sense, but there was no air in the air. There was no oxygen in the air. So I kept putting my head in the water, trying to breathe. And so there's a, the desperation was intense and the conditions were absolutely dangerous because even experienced swimmers who, um, who on an organized, you know, like a special event day attempt to swim from South Cove to North Cove. And so this is along the Western edge of Manhattan. Um, it's on the, exactly the, the waterfront that people were stuck at that day. Um, people trying to make this, you know, carefully planned with special boats to keep everybody safe. They choose it for a good, favorable tide condition. And people still talked about being churned up, like being in a washing machine because the river was, is so choppy and because the currents are so, so um, strong. And so people were quite literally swept out nearly to sea and were rescued. Now I, I, really would imagine that there were other people who haven't been found who um, really did make it all the way out to sea. But we know that people got close to that because of being rescued by the New York Waterway Ferries in particular. Um, so this was a, a really dangerous situation. It's a mile across to New Jersey. Swimming a mile for most of us is a stretch. And certainly under those conditions, it, it, is, uh, it was not going to go well. And I, I said the word desperation for people. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking I could have said panic for the people that are down there and well-earned. But here are these mariners that you speak about in Saved at the Seawall or that we meet through your book. They can't panic. They they have to be there. They, they can cause an even worse disaster if one tugboat <laughs> just, ah, and it goes and hits the circle line and then the circle line sinks and then no one can get in that place. They have to be really really on top of their job. That's part of the reasons that they do that training that you mentioned so that it becomes muscle memory. So I wanted to, to definitely bring that up while everybody else is running away. We often hear there were firemen and there were firefighters and police that ran into those towers. Well, these men do the same thing and women do the same thing. They try to, they have to go towards those smoldering buildings. And I know, as I said, just my story looking out there, the last thing I wanted to do you might want to go see them, but you certainly, because you couldn't believe it, but you didn't want to run towards them. You didn't want to be anywhere near it because it was terrifying and you didn't know if something was going to come next. And so thank God for that training. That is just amazing that they were able to do that. And this goes so smoothly here. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't, we don't hear more about this. I'm so glad you wrote Saved at the Seawall because we have half a million people saved. There's 40, there's 50,000 rather people in that World Trade Center complex. So there's a lot of people in the city that day and the workforce ends up being cast far and wide. So all of that brings me to my next question, which is about how you go about finding people, how you go about getting these stories so you can give us that full picture in Saved at the Seawall. 
Yeah, it was extremely challenging. There's no sort of, you know, alumni association, there's no registry. Um, and what's been really interesting is that um, as more people have heard about the story and the book, they, they I, I get messages on Twitter like, oh, I was one of those people who was rescued. And um, and I always want to hear their stories. I I mean, I'm a, I'm a reporter, right? That's what I do. And, and a journalist. And so I, I did my digging. One person would connect me to another person. And it's just a lot of word of mouth. Certainly finding the Mariners. It was helpful to be a part of that community. I think it was easier for people to share their stories with another Mariner and folks who had been, um, who were evacuees. I think it was easier to talk to somebody who had been down there. And I think um, that sort of division that you talked about between um, people, people who were there and people who weren't, it's interesting because, you know, certainly as a, as a an avid history reader, you know, that that is, um, a standard sort of divide that happens um, in war situations, right? Um, where, you know, my grandfather went to the VFW, you know, to hang out because he didn't have to talk about it because everybody already knew, right? Um, and so I think that's an interesting piece. Um, and I, you know, I just wanted to bring up that this, the professionalism is really important. And there's this other piece here, which is that each of us has this capacity to make that choice. And what I heard over and over and over again was um, mariners who, for example, there's a sailing yacht who had, there was a whole story, which I get into in the book of how they left um, North Cove, which is right there, um, the closest water to the Trade Center Towers. Um, and he manages to get safely to New Jersey and, and has passengers on board that he's already evacuated. And he then hears from the land side, he hears that people are jumping into the water uh, along the seawall. And he unties his lines in a sailing yacht and goes back. This is like a dinner chart, you know, fancy dinner charter boat kind of thing. And he goes back and there are people pressed up against the seawall, uh, against the railing, climbing the railing, desperate, like pleading for him to rescue them. And he, uh, the, for folks who don't know, the bowsprit is sort of the the sticking out it's like the narwhal horn of of a boat of a sailboat and people literally climbed across that bowsprit um and to get on until it was you know and the the wakes were incredibly um tumultuous that day and the current was really strong and so at a certain point it was just it just was not safe to keep doing that but that's the level of commitment that people had and at that moment i feel like it's not just about the professionalism. It's just about this, this bare, raw human goodness that gets summoned in the midst of catastrophes. And there's so much research by disaster researchers that tell us that, um, that tells us that when um, disasters happen, the first first responders almost always are just regular civilians, are people, not firefighters, EMS, uh, police officers, not those folks, but just regular people. And so again and again, you see throughout history, people rising up to help one another when bad things happen. And we're unfortunately in a, um, in a world where we often hear the flip side of those stories. We don't often, and we don't sufficiently celebrate the coming together that people do um, when, when disaster strikes. You talk about them 
going, being the first responders before the first responders, the unprofessional, maybe you'd say, or not unprofessional, but the, the, this is not something anyone, even the Port Authority does not expect to do to ever have to evacuate lower Manhattan. So I wanted to bring up the fact that you have this word go out, and I played this clip, the video of the then lieutenant, now captain, who sends out that really bold message. And I, I feel that that should be up there with a Newt Rockney speech because he's just so, uh, there's so much in that, in that people heard it already. So I don't have to try to describe it, fortunately. But he puts out that word and then he says, because this community is so close, people were willing to hear this voice of some lieutenant in the middle of the Hudson River and respond when he says, anybody who wants to help, let's, let's all get together, come to Governor's Island, and we're going we're gonna to have this rescue. And that's how this happens. And people compare it to Dunkirk. It's bigger in the number of people than Dunkirk. But they were already on a war footing in Great Britain. My mom was there in London at the time during the Blitz, and everybody down to her when she was just five, they were all ready for anything that might happen. This was just another sunny day. This was just, oh, we watched the Giants and Monday Night Football the night before, and we were just going about our business, and nobody could have expected this. So I think that's something that has different than that is different than Dunkirk. So talk a little bit about this ancient tradition among mariners and then how they get the word, because phone lines are jammed, things like that are happening. It's just chaos. How do they communicate and what is it deep inside them ingrained in mariners that they said, oh, yeah, of course, sure, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go help. That's what we do. Definitely. All of these are really good points. Um, one thing that I think um, we lose sight of really easily is that by the time uh, Lieutenant Michael Day, who um, retired as Captain Michael Day, um, put that call out for all available boats, that was at 1045 in the morning. So Mariners had been working for hours within minutes after the first tower hit when it was still perceived to be an accident of a small plane. There were already Mariners who knew that even just an accident at the World Trade Center would mean, especially the ferry captains and crews, would mean that they their services would be needed. So typically the way the ferry operations would go is that they would have you know their rush hour uh, number of boats and then things would go offline as the traffic dwindled. People stayed online and they they went straight down to lower Manhattan within a minute. So this was a rescue that was not top down at all. And so Dunkirk was a very different system. You've probably seen those um, photographs where um, people are on the phone lines, you know, and, and summoning, uh, summoning, trying to rally resources. There are so many distinctions between Dunkirk and um, the boat lift um, in, in Manhattan. Um, one is size, um, because it was 338,000 people who were evacuated at Dunkirk. The, the other piece of it is that it was a top-down operation. It was, okay, we got to get these people out. What kind of resources do we have? And what because of the mythology that was sold at the time, we uh, it was passed down through history that these were just like work, you know, weekend sailors who were on their boats. When in fact, vessels were commandeered by the military, um, and so they were um, there were some civilian there was some civilian participation, but by and large, it was not. It was military. Um, the other piece here is that this was a spontaneous effort by mariners. So we have ferry captain Rick Thornton, who 
recognizes, sees the second plane hit, recognizes that this is absolutely a terrorist attack, that this is what's happening. And he does not communicate with his, his job is ferrying passengers over and back, over and back, very strict schedule, as you know, right? Like everybody's looking at their watches if you're one minute late. He does not check in with home base or anything. He just guns straight for lower Manhattan because he recognizes people are going to be desperate. So that all happens before the Coast Guard is on scene. So there was no um, communications were jammed 100 percent. The VHS was uh, uh, completely overrun there. Um, the radio communications were impossible. There were times, especially when the dust um, was taking over the area where mariners were um, navigating solely by radar because they could not see. So they were coming in blind. And there were also moments where people went back to almost like, um, you know, you picture you're you're coming in for a landing on a plane and there's the air traffic controller people on the ground who are like doing the signaling with the flags. That kind of stuff was happening, just like eye contact across the water at certain points because there was no way to communicate in the typical ways. And there was so much traffic and so many people operating giant boats in places that were not equipped at all to accommodate them. Um, but this was a spontaneous effort. This was individual mariners making the choice to go because people needed help. It was not, it did not fall technically under the, um, the admiralty law that was established that is, um, was actually established after the sinking of uh, the Titanic, that it was now encoded in law that if you, if briefly, I mean, it's much more legalese, but like if you're, if you're out at sea and you can help without jeopardizing yourself, your passengers, your vessel, you must help, right? That wasn't even technically at work here because these folks were on land. Um, maybe they, the people who are in the water, that would qualify, but this is, this is something larger. Yes, there was a, an identity as a mariner and a sort of professional honor that drove people to do this, but I actually think it was really just a human impulse that we have to help each other. If you have the capacity to help somebody in need and you see that, how do you turn your back on that? Most of us don't, we really don't. We really do recognize someone else in need and step up. And that's something that I think that we need to celebrate more um, and recognize that that's a part of our heritage. That's a part of who we are. It's a part of who we can be today, tomorrow. We can make those choices. I like that you did something there that's very important to me when looking back at people in history that do historic or that do heroic things or do big things. And we say, well, of course they did it. They were great. Of course, Martin Luther King went and made those speeches. Of course, George Washington went and led that army. Well, then you look back and you see that, well, Dr. King said, if I don't give the speeches, nobody's going to give them. I don't want to first, you know, he had to train himself. He had to learn. He knew that there was a job to be done. He was going to do it. George Washington, he fails so much in his whole life. And then he goes and he answers that call. And this, these are those things on a smaller level. So I hope people are enjoying this conversation and, I want them to pick up the book and, and be inspired. It doesn't have to all be, unfortunately, the falling man and, all, and the death toll we know and the reading of the names. We know that. But this is something that reminds us of the best of us that was brought out that day. And it was said a lot in reporting at the time. You know and I know both working in media at the time. There, there was a lot of that really excellent writing because nothing had to be sensationalized. It was all really true and raw. And you didn't have to try to grab eyeballs because everyone's eyeballs were already glued to the TV. Mm. Again, my guest is Jessica Dulong and her book is Saved at the Seawall, 
stories from the September 11th boat lift. Find her at jessicadulong.com, as well as on Twitter and Facebook. Garrett Graff, who's the author of The Only Plane in the Sky, writes of the book, Saved at the Seawall is the greatest 9-11 story you've never heard. Jessica Dulong's impressive, vital work has preserved one of 9-11's most dramatic and least known stories. Now future generations will forever know of the courage and spirit of New York's mariners. Jessica, I'll, I'll add New Jersey in there because a lot of people are coming yes. from New Jersey. People, add, people uh, came from all over here to help. That was the important thing. And we do tend to focus, just as we tend to focus on what was happening in New York, we tend to focus on what was happening in the sky, on the ground. We're all looking up to that day. This is a story on the water. Why was this story not told so completely for so long? Why did these, was it something about the Mariners? Was it something about just so many other stories that, that needed to be told, a reticence on their part? Why did it take so long before these stories could be told in this way? Because they are great, inspiring stories. It's it's such an important question, and I've um, I've been puzzling over this for two decades, quite honestly. Um, I think a piece of it is um, stems from what I discussed um, at length in my first book, which is called My River Chronicles: Rediscovering the Work That Built America. It really is about the rise and fall of respect for hands-on work. So there is a long history. New York Harbor is a birthplace of American industry, and it is why so many of us are here. I mean, if you look around in your, your home, your office, your, you know, wherever you work, just about everything in your life was actually transported overseas, right? And from overseas. And, um, and still, once the working waterfront was no longer right front and center, you know, along Manhattan's shores, people sort of, it was out of sight, out of, out of mind. And people sort of lost touch with the fact that this crucial, essential work is happening every single day behind the scenes in New Jersey, in Staten Island, in Brooklyn. At a certain point, um, break bulk cargo where, you know, small items are packed together in very kind of questionable arrangements oftentimes, which caused a lot of fires, actually. That's the way that goods were were handled. And it was hand-to-hand, you know, sort of bucket brigade uh, approach to, to maneuvering goods. And actually, there were echoes for me at Ground Zero um, that sort of returned to break bulk cargo that I noticed, because in addition to evacuating passengers, um, the boats actually played a huge, huge role in transporting supplies that were necessary for rescue workers on the site. So cases and cases of water, every supply you can think of, you know, uh, masks, flashlights, eye wash, everything. And it all came by boat or a large majority of it came by boat and people offloaded it box by box in bucket brigades. And so it was this interesting return to the, the working waterfront that we once had. So there had been 76 miles of working shoreline when you add up all the finger piers that used to be along the edge of Manhattan. And all of that is gone. And by the by 2001, you now have the vestiges of that um, proud maritime history getting cobbled away and disappeared and everything is turned into a recreational sort of let's look at the river, you know, and say, ah, what a pretty view, you know, as opposed to actually engaging in the water or with the water. And that actually caused life or death problems for people because the infrastructure wasn't there. So you have tugboats 
fireboats, all of these vessels pulling up to a seawall where there's no fendering, where there's no safe ladder down, where there's uh, a railing that literally is curved inland that people then have to clamber over in order to get to the water. So it was a very uh, unsafe situation that was exacerbated by the lack of acknowledgement of our maritime heritage that these boats could be called upon for something like this. The other thing is, I think there's a, a denigration of, of the folks who do this work, right? I mean, there's a dismissal. The people who were important were the people who were in the towers, right? The, the businessmen and women, the people, you know, handling the big bucks. And this is a work a day, you know, working class, blue collar group of people. And over and over again, for generations, we've seen the, um, the debasement and the, the, the devaluing of that work. So I think that's a piece of it. The other piece of why I think this history has gone unrecognized is that um, you talked about the hero narrative and we have, there are a lot of people highly invested in the hero narrative. It's really, really helpful to make sure to divide people in so many ways. And we're seeing that play out in this country and dividing people into heroes and everybody else serves a lot of purposes for the powers that be. Um, and um, we've, we're seeing it in COVID and it's just heartbreaking. I had the privilege to watch uh, Spike Lee's new documentary, New York City Epicenters, that talks about both COVID pandemic and September 11th. What's happened in the pandemic is that there are certain people who are dubbed as heroes, but basically not given appropriate PPE. Right. And so if we somehow like lionize them and put them on a pedestal, somehow their humanity, like you said, Dr. Martin Luther King, he writes in letter from Birmingham jail about being afraid. Right. We dehumanize people by by turning them into heroes. So I think that is another piece of it that I'm, I'm actually writing about right now, which I think is a really important lesson for us. We don't need these divisions. We actually all have this. And there's a um, boat lift documentary. Everybody has a little bit of hero in them, is, is what one of the deckhands, I believe he is, uh, says. And I, I would argue that it's not even we have a bit of hero in us. It's we just have this human goodness that we tamp down and, and carve up and, and diminish. And so the more we can get back to that genuine caring and altruism, which is, our, I would argue, our true nature, the better for all of us. That makes me think of several things. And one is the... If you say people have a little hero in them, it, it's still separating us from, well, that's a hero, but I have a tiny little bit of this. No, we, <laughs> we all have to rise up. And when you spoke about the work with the hands, I always think of a way that a book could be the book that changes a young person's life. And it may not seem like you'd give somebody a book like Save the Seawall, but we need people who can change tires for one thing. There's so many people. My, my dad was an auto mechanic. And so he still has that in him. <laughs> like you, you, you see there were Sears catalogs where you could buy a house kit from Sears. They would ship it to you and you would put it together. Yeah. Not even a hundred years ago. And today ask somebody to change the oil in their car or to change a tire or to put together Ikea furniture and they can't do it. And it is a lost skill. And as you said, those are the people we overlook. Well, don't get your hands dirty. Wear the white collar. You don't want to be doing that. And that that's natural. My dad didn't want me to, to go do the mechanic life or my brothers, but he wanted us to know how to do it, to have those skills, just add that to your skill set. So I thought that was so important. And my last thing was about Penn Station. You talked about putting them up on pedestals. Originally, they wanted to do a statue of the president of 
of the Pennsylvania Railroad in there and one of the sand hogs, which were the men that dug those tunnels underneath the Hudson River. And people said, nah, we don't need the, we don't want some dirty sand hog up there holding a shovel. The name even is disgusting, right? Like, ah, bah, bah. Let's just keep, and the president was a guy who'd wanted, unfortunately he passed away. So mm. th these are the things and I, I just wanted you to, to mention that when you speak to a young person and I'm, I'm sure maybe you speak to some adults, maybe you speak to some, some older people. I could see a, a little sweet old lady saying to you on the D train, you an engineer, pretty thing like you or some such thing. <laughs> it's like people may seem, may still seem strange to some people. So what do you say to young people who look at these and say, oh, I wonder if I could do that. You know, I'd like to be an engineer. I, I've done um, so many talks, uh, especially about my, my first book, My River Chronicles, um, which is really all about that, um, all about that, um, that respect for the history that brought us here, the, the amazing American craftsmanship um, that really made it possible for fireboat John J. Harvey, which is the boat that I uh, worked on for 20 years. Um, it was able to pump water at ground zero because of the incredible craftsmanship um, that made it last for so many decades um, and still still be able to function. Um, so when I talk to kids, I, I and I've done a lot of speaking before school groups and things like that. And I, I talk about the fact that not everybody actually should go to college. That's not actually the best way that all of us learn. And some of us can reach our highest potential through other enterprises. And um, the, the skills gap that we've seen in this country, um, where there are, um, you know, highly skilled CNC machinist jobs that just go vacant because no one no one has the skill set to be able to do that. There are really good, solid, high-paying jobs that um, that would be dubbed blue collar that are available to people. Um, but we sort of dismiss this out of hand, and we're seeing that the myth of college being the stepping stone to, you know, great success and everything's going to work out just fine. It's it's not the truth. It's just not the case. And there are a lot of kids who end up um, not graduating. Uh, within uh, six years and being saddled with huge debt as a result of, of college. So I'm, I'm a college, college graduate. I went to Stanford University. I love college. I love reading. I love the intellectual life. And that's not the only thing that matters. Um, and having those hands-on skills, which I was raised with uh, also my dad is, uh, is a mechanic as well. And, and we were steeped in that knowledge that you needed to be able to learn how to fix things yourself. And, and that the gratifying feeling of being able to, you know, something is broken and then you fix it or being able to strategize through a, okay, you know, all hell broke is, has broken loose in the engine room of a fireboat, John J. Harvey. How do I cobble it together so that we can make it back to the pier? You know, I mean that there's, there's so much there um, that is gratifying that um, that's accessible to people. Maybe not that gig in particular, but um, that that kind of work. And so I do try to encourage kids to not be discouraged if sitting at a desk and being lectured to doesn't work for them. There are so many other ways to learn, and we need to have uh, educational paths available to people that are that are respected, that are legit, that are going to prepare people for the real world we we now occupy. You say one small thing I'll mention from another interview, but you say when you're down in the engine room and you're using all your senses and when things are humming right, and that's, we admire people like that. I know but people say they're inspired by fictional characters like Scotty on the USS yeah. Enterprise. They, wow, I wanted to be an engineer. or I, I, I felt that too. If I wanted to get something running right, I'd fix my, my sister's bike or, you know, I'd, I'd, 
I'd fix my brother's computer. I just could do it. So I did want to mention that. I think this would be so inspiring for a young person to see that you never know. You, you just have to be ready for that moment. You don't know what your skill set is. Don't limit yourself to the path everyone tells you should take. Certainly the, the Mariners that day did not do that. I wanted to mention that New York's governor, George Pataki, was in Manhattan on 9-11. He wasn't in the state capital of Albany. And I interviewed him about his book, and it's called Beyond the Great Divide, How a Nation Became a Neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And as I was talking to him and then planning to do your book today, Saved at the Seawall, I thought one of the things in a neighborhood is eh, maybe you have a guy down the street, he talks too much, or that guy bugs him. He's always calling the cops. Oh, gosh, my car's on the street. Leave me alone. I know, I know it's in the way or whatever. But for, for your story, that is the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey to me, where they're much maligned, the traffic, the construction. We, we love to complain about the Port Authority and how they run things. In Saved at the Seawall, we see them rise, too, to this amazing and unprecedented, unimaginable scenario of evacuating lower Manhattan. What will readers learn about that government agency, or if you want to pick another one, one that answered the call on 9-11 and how they messed with these private people, because often there's there's a real turf war. I don't want you in Port Authority. I don't want you in local cops. So talk a little bit about that, because that's a big agency and they are right at the center of this. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think the best way to explain it is by, to buy by talking about sort of multiple agencies and how they came together. So again, just to emphasize that there were, these were individual operators at the beginning, right? Um, and uh, these were just individual um, captains of boats who said, okay, I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to go down. And then as things went on, the, um, the Coast Guard realized that they had, they could, they could help. And so um, first you have um, folks on, sort of delivered to the land side to help uh, figure out vessel capacities and to make sure that the the onboarding was going to be as safe as possible. So you have like marine inspectors doing that. These are Coast Guard folks. You have sort of a uh, an effort, a collaborative effort between uh, Lieutenant then Lieutenant Michael Day, um, who decides, okay, we're going to go out there. We're going to do this sort of um, patrol. Uh, you know, a, a U-shaped patrol at the tip of Manhattan. What's the best vessel for that? Oh, I know. I'm going to call the Sandy Hook pilots because their boat has a, a is a really well-designed vessel, large, large capacity. Um, it's a place that we can really um, position ourselves well. We're going to take that vessel and we're going to put a Coast Guard flag up so everybody knows it's the Coast Guard. But there's this overlap of agencies like that just would not happen normally, right? So they they teamed up and uh, the pilots are just the experts of everything in the harbor. To uh, the pilots, just for people who don't know, what they do is they meet um, ocean-going vessels at the harbor, at the mouth of the harbor, um, and, and a pilot has to actually um, do the, the navigating decision-making uh, through the harbor so that the, they are experts in the harbor. They have to like draw the nautical charts from memory. I mean, it's like crazy to think the depth of knowledge that they have. So these are a bunch of deep draft boats, meaning there's a lot of boat, kind of like an iceberg. There's a lot of boat that's under the water, right? That, um, that you need enough water needs to be deep enough water that they can come ashore. And because of the vestiges of industry in, in New York Harbor, there are all of these, um, there's all this debris 
And so you need to know where, where you're going to run into something and rip out the bottom of your boat, right? You need to avoid that. And uh, because that's not going to help the passengers you're trying to rescue either. So that, that local knowledge is, is shared on this, um, it is called the pilot boat, New York. And, um, and those agencies came together. Then you have on, um, on the sort of radio control side, at a certain point, the entire commercial port gets shut down to all commercial traffic. Now, if you're in a car and it's like the roads get shut down, even if there's no place to go, you can just pull over, right? You can just stop your car or even you can stop in lanes, right? We've seen that happen in disaster situations, you know, just you just stop and you get out of your car. That obviously can't happen with a boat. And so you have these huge vessels navigating throughout the harbor and and the um, the the port needs to figure out where to put them, where they can safely dock. A lot of these vessels are not um, are so large that they can't even turn around in in a lot of places along the river. And so, navigating all of that, understanding the 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 um, the size and shape and draft of the vessel, uh, and being able to figure out where it could fit and how. And okay, if we put that one there, then that slot's going to be filled up. And so it was a big, big mess to coordinate. Um, uh, on board the uh, pilot boat, um, the Coast Guard also set up a specific channel. So if you're doing this run, why don't we have this boat do this run back and forth and sort of set up a makeshift ferry service. And um, if you can help with this, then go to channel you know, 67. And if you can help with this, go to channel whatever. you know. And so there was this, um, this in- improvised sort of, how are we going to get this done? And they got it done. They just worked together. There was no, yeah, this is my turf. I mean, they're just that hierarchical stuff that typically gets in the way of smooth working together and collaboration. It didn't happen that day. And it's really incredible, really incredible. At least on the water, it didn't happen that day. You liken them to the traffic cops sometimes that are out there, the Coast Guard, and yet they all, everybody works together. And it, it really is a great story. I could keep talking about it. I hope that people will have their interests peaked and will want to go now and pick up a copy of Save the Seawall. I want to close with one final question, and it's a quote by Paul Amico. And he recalled thinking, let the plumbers do the plumbing. And that stuck with me, meaning let everyone play their part. In Saved at the Seawall, we see everyday people rising to the occasion, doing great things, and they're they're offering service, offering a helping hand to their fellow citizens in need. They're they're just helping because they can. So I wanted you to make your pitch a little bit. Tell us why readers should pick up this book and what you hope they will learn about rising to the occasion when big or small tragedy strikes so that they can follow in the steps of these these heroic mariners. Thank you for that opportunity. You know, I'm, I do narrative, so let me tell you a story. I think that's the best way to answer that question. There's a remarkable story that I tell in this book an individual who, um, he's, he, he works like telecom, a telecom job, and he's just temping in one of the World Financial Center buildings. He doesn't realize because he's in this like enclosed comp room, he doesn't hear the alarms when the buildings are called to evacuate that building, which is World Financial Center, not Trade Center. He he, like emerges from the the comp data room and like sees and there's no one there and there's the like the, the phone dangling and the chairs are still swiveling, but everybody is just vanished, right? And so he 
ends up leaving. He's wandering around. He sees horrific sights of, of people plunging to their death from the towers. He runs to the river. He's the one who says, uh, I was going to swim to Jersey. He's from New Jersey. And um, he ends up on board uh, a fireboat and um, he gets caught in the collapse. And um, the first thing he does is he takes off his shirt and he tears it up into strips and finds some water dripping from a hose and ties one around his face to protect against the dust and hands whatever he can to the the other passengers near him so that they can try to mask. He makes it to New Jersey because uh, the, the, the fireboat delivers passengers um, to New Jersey. And while they're on the Jersey side, he's there with these firefighters who work on this boat the second tower comes down and he watches their faces as they're taking in the fact that their brother and sister firefighters are there. And, um, and he looks at them and now he's, he lives in Jersey. He's, he's home safe, right? He can just get on a train and he looks at them. He's like, I'm going with you. And the guy's like, what? And he's like, you guys need help. I'm going with you. And firefighter Tom Sullivan said, okay. And he ends up this guy who's not a firefighter, he's not a mariner, he's not, he's just a guy. And he ends up going back shirtless, now wearing a PFD for some sort of coverage um, and humping hose line and bringing hose lines to the many, many active fires that are there at the site. He works the entire day, then has to hitch a ride from another boat back later in the afternoon, is on the train now on the Jersey side and his PFD all ashen. And he's embarrassed. He's actually embarrassed that he looks so out of place. He ends up being, um, he, he's now uh, part of the FDNY. He ends up becoming a firefighter. So yes, there's a little hero in everyone but that's just, that's the goodness that rises up, right? That's the goodness. And so he saw that there was a need. He's like, I might die some, I, I might die today. He says that to himself on his way over back to the island on fire. And he makes that choice anyway. And he's, he's not a mariner who's been indoctrinated with this sort of ethos. He's just a guy. He's just a person. And that, I think, is the choice that each of us has to be able to make every day. And you know what? A lot of times the choices we can make toward kindness and towards helping somebody do not cost us that much at all. They don't. And the more we can summon that and and allow it because it's there, it's within us and we tamp it down. Right. And that goodness is there. The more that we can allow it and share it, it's contagious. It's more contagious than the Delta variant. You know, let's get it out there and let's let's make that choice to help each other. You say that little piece inside us. So I wanna thank you, Jessica Dulong, for sharing Saved at the Seawall today and encourage everybody, pick up this book, nurture that little piece inside you that, that we all have, that little bit, let it grow. So when that moment comes, you can make you can make all the difference for one person, as they say, or you may make a difference for a whole city, or you may become an inspiring story that inspires somebody else. But the important thing is to, to do it, to nurture that piece. I want to thank you so much for gathering these stories of heroism on 9-11 so that they weren't lost to history. And I really do wish you the best of luck with the book. It's an excellent, inspiring read. I hope everybody listening and watching will pick up a copy of their own to remember these mariners, these everyday people that pitched in on a day nobody could have trained for or imagined. Thank you so much for your time. And again, best of luck with this excellent book, Saved at the Seawall. I really appreciate you making space for this, this history. It's part of our heritage. We need to remember. Thank you. Again, the book is Saved at the Seawall, 
stories from the September 11th boat lift. Remember, you can always find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. Every time you buy a book through there, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. And it gives me some encouragement. And our guests really do like to see their numbers go up a little after they've been on the show. My thanks to Jessica Dulong for joining us and for sharing these important first-person accounts of our generation's Pearl Harbor. You can visit her at jessicadulong.com or on social media on Twitter at Jessica Dulong and Facebook. And you can find me on those as well as LinkedIn. And please do check out our YouTube channel. We're building up that channel and I have several now, I guess maybe a dozen interviews that are done on video like this that I tried to give a little bit more of a documentary feel. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Jessica Dulong, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east, sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. 